0: Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. A guest on today's podcast is my friend Rebecca Hatch. Welcome to the podcast, Rebecca. Thank you. We're going to talk about Rebecca's work um, that she's doing as a BYU student. It's not necessarily part of her BYU work, but she's just taken this on to Uh, Make all family types within our church feel welcome. That would be LGBTQ, families that have divorced members, adoption, different races. And um, we're going to talk about a Facebook page he's put together, and we're going to talk about the role of art to help kind of develop, build empathy for different family types There's obviously the traditional family that's part of our faith, but as our listeners know, and many of you are part of, not everybody's part of a traditional family. And we need to do better culturally so that all families feel welcome. And we better understand what it's like to grow up in a divorced family or an interracial family or where some family members are LGBTQ. I became aware of Rebecca. I went and taught... uh, the BYU Gender of Psychology class last May. Um, Professor Wood and um, Rebecca is a member of that class, TAing for that class. And I talked about LGBTQ in that class and Rebecca reached out to me and shared with me her project and want you to, our listeners to be aware of it. Um, she is, I mentioned, a psychology student graduating in 2020. She served a mission in the Dallas, Texas area. Um, English speaking, Um, Rebecca and her husband, Hunter, have been married two and a half years. They were high school sweethearts at Copper Hills High School here in the Salt Lake Valley. Um, Hunter served a mission to Mongolia, and they're just a great couple, been married two and a half years, um, both in school. Rebecca's plan is to eventually go to law school and possibly practice family law, Um, or policy, but one of the tender spots for her and her long-term career goals is to help children have a voice um, when they are part of a divorced family. Is that okay for an introduction, Rebecca? Let's talk about, just tell our listeners um, the name of your project. We'll tell and the Facebook page where people could find it.
1: Yeah, so the project's called the Abnormal Family Project. Uh, it's designed to help non-traditional families become more empowered and feel less stigmatized in our current culture and current society. And so we have a Facebook page. It's called the Abnormal Family Project on the Facebook page, and it's the
0: Abnormal Fam, Fam
1: Family Project.
0: Family Project. Yep.
1: And so it's designed. It's a. It's the interface that we have right now with the community as we work together to bring together pieces. That people submit, either if it's art or photography or writing, that kind of captures their unique experiences with their family. And then our hopes is to have a publication going next year that people can purchase. And then the profit from those publications will go to a nonprofit or charity that serves families.
0: And we're going to talk more about that, um, listeners. But tell, share with our listeners how you got in this space.
1: Yeah, so I I grew up in a divorced home, and I definitely, especially within the state of Utah, felt the stigma that kind of surrounds coming from a different family. Like, I'd go to church, and all my friends would have their dad sitting on the pew with them, and I I didn't feel like I, my dad wouldn't be there. It would just be my mom and my brothers. And so I became very aware and very sensitive to the stigmas that non-traditional or abnormal families face, um, especially within our church culture. And I have, I have friends who are part of the LGBT community, and we would share and talk about their experiences and how difficult those experiences would be for them because of the stigmas that they faced. And so I, I decided, I started researching and trying to find ways to kind of help reduce stigmas and community art initiatives is, is one way that um, has been psychologically, support, psychologically supported to reduce stigmas and increase empathy for marginalized groups.
0: How old were you when your parents split up?
1: So I was seven years old when my dad left and my mother filed for divorce.
0: And how many were how many kids were in the home at that point? So it was me
1: and my two younger brothers at
0: that point. When you felt stigma at church, was it things people said or was it just the unthings said, or was it just kind of there's just an ongoing conversation about the nuclear family, if I'm using the right vocabulary, a dad and a mom and kids. And that you just looked at that and said, that's not what I'm experiencing.
1: All of the above. I know like the daddy-daughter dates, like those were always very Daddy difficult. Daddy-daughter <laughs>
0: dates. Yes,
1: that the church would do. Um, I, I think like my mom, where she was told from her friends of, oh, I read the Book of Mormon every day, or we go to the temple together every Friday, so I'm not worried about getting divorced and how hurtful that was to her, feeling what? like somehow she failed.
0: Yeah, tell why. Just, just why is that hurtful?
1: Just that it somehow implies that she wasn't faithful enough to keep her marriage going, which is entirely untrue. I, she's one of my biggest examples of faith and of trusting God no matter what life is thrown at her. And it's not something you can control. You can't control how your family turns out. You have your agency and they have theirs.
0: What a tribute to her. Um, what could we, we're going to, uh, what could if I were a member of your congregation or a local leader, what could I have done to help your family?
1: I think creating space for conversations to happen, feeling safe talking about it. I, I feel like the biggest part for me is I just felt lonely in my experience. Like they were hard. It was hard going through a divorce at a young age. It was hard for my mom and for me, my brothers, and. I think if there was just a way where I felt like I could talk about that freely without being judged or without being stigmatized, I think that would have helped a lot.
0: Who would you have liked to talk to about it?
1: Anybody. Probably people my own age. But it's again, it there's just stigmas there. And people, when your family is broken apart because of divorce or if your family in some other way fails to meet the ideal family of the church, then... People look at you as if somehow you failed, or somehow your family is just coming short of what they need to be doing. And it it never I never felt like I had that safe space to talk about without getting that judgment in return.
0: And would you have liked that safe space individually or also in a classroom sitting with your fellow young women?
1: Probably both, I think. I think both would have been really valuable.
0: maybe we'll talk about this later, but we talk about the proclamation, of the family in our church rightly so it's part of our church and part of our teachings but sometimes i think we could talk about groups of faithful latter day saints that that doesn't quite fit did you feel like that didn't fit for you anymore because your parents weren't married or did, did that ever did you ever connect dots with that story or the not story but our teachings in the proclamation family and your own family experience
1: yeah i, I definitely believe in the proclamation to the family, believe it's good for a lot of people, but I also believe that it's exclusive as it stands, that for, like, my experience, like, there, there's not, that it, I didn't feel like it addressed, like, what my family was going through, and I felt like it, by, it, because it didn't address what my family was going through, that we were stigmatized because we didn't fit within its teachings, and that somehow we were coming short of being a good family or being a valuable family.
0: Good. I like your vocabulary, um, Rebecca. Stigmatized, coming up short. It helps me just understand how you felt. I'm kind of imagining you as a 14-year-old, 16-year-old, 18-year-old, 10-year-old, and sitting in classes as we talk about the teachings of our church, and and just that that at times probably were some really good days, but some difficult days. And I would guess there was not awareness that something I could say as a teacher would actually add to your load, and I would not even have sort of the sensitivity training to understand that.
1: Yeah, and I, that's with my friends who are part of the LGBTQ community. That's something that they've expressed where people say things and they don't realize what they're saying about how hurtful it can be. I definitely experienced that in part being in the church and not having both parents in the home. Where people would say, "Oh, like we feel bad for single parent homes because the children don't turn out as good," and or "Oh, we feel bad for you know people who go through divorce," and it just, just the this idea that you can't come back from it, or I don't know.
0: Why is divorce the right decision in some cases?
1: In some cases, like I look at my parents' marriage, I look at my mother's marriage to my stepdad, and no amount of marriage therapy could have saved the relationship, and. In both cases, my, my dad and then my stepdad quit on the marriage. They weren't doing their part, and there's nothing more my mom could have done to try to force them to stay in the marriage or do what they needed to do to make the marriage work. And so in those cases, in cases of abuse, in cases of you know addiction or criminal activity, that there's so much damage being done to the family that it's better if the divorce happens to let people heal apart.
0: Yeah, and I, uh, I listened to uh, Steve Young um, on a BYU Management Podcast a couple days ago, and he talked about um, healing, and he did talk about, you know, uh, meekness and love unfeigned and sort of these four principles of love. But then he says, and they're to heal people and heal relationships, but in the Q&A, someone talked about, what about a toxic relationship? And Steve said, you know, it's a, to heal, you may need to end a toxic relationship. It's part of healing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes two people to make a relationship work, are there church leaders or church talks or something that has helped you or your mother or your family that just felt like there was more empathy for a divorced family? Has anything come to mind in that area, or is it just a kind of a area where we need to talk about it more
1: (laughs) i think an area we need to talk about it more i mean there's so many parallels we've been able to draw along the line from the scriptures or my mom one of her favorite verses was the verse in Ephraim talks about how the tears of the mothers and children will be held against you know fathers who who failed to do their part and that helped her get through but i mean there wasn't a lot more beyond that to kind of help us understand where we fit and how where god was of our unique trajectory through the church
0: yeah, I've, I like that. I recognize when I was, um, you know, I'm, I'm recognizing the way we stigmatize divorced people. I think there was a time temple workers, male temple workers, could not be divorced and be ordinance workers. Mm-hmm. And I'm an ordinance worker, except we're on hiatus with COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember also males couldn't be an ordinance worker at age 30 if they were still unmarried. And both of those have changed. And I just like that both of those change because it's it was just a policy it was never our doctrine but it also kind of creates a, a a stick to use your word sort of stigmatized that you know you're less than um, so you can't be a temple worker if you've been divorced or mm-hmm. once you're thirty and unmarried I think that was just for males it didn't apply to sisters I th- you know so there's some messages about that that add to this, can you say this word, stigmatization?
1: Stigmatization, yeah.
0: Stigmatization. Any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I know my mom, she always wanted to be a seminary teacher, and from her understanding, she can't because she's been divorced. And so there's still some of those residual policies, as you call them, that are are still very stigmatizing towards people who don't have the perfect ideal family, often by no choice of their own. And in just, again, kind of, again, putting them in the spot where they feel like they're on the outgroup of the church. They're, they're trying to be part of it, but that they're excluded because of the policies surrounding a doctrine that's inherently pretty inc- exclusive right now.
0: It's interesting. And I think of a shift in the church when we went to, I sort of look at home teaching and visiting teaching as kind of like the Law of Moses, And then I look at a holier way that Elder Holland talked about when we went to ministering. It was more Mm principle-based. And it sort of took us to a higher law that I have—I can't just check a box and sort of know if I'm meeting the needs of people I'm assigned to. I've got to really minister to them. And so I think of that principle that I see gaining momentum in the church, and I think about the impact on other things that as we move to principle-based temple workers, then everybody— or seminary teachers, or local leaders, or even senior leaders—you know—calling the right person that's worthy um, and is the right person called of God, versus disc- excluding some people from consideration because their lived experiences are not just the traditional lived experience. I don't think a divorced man can serve as a bishop right now. I think that's still. I so. And so, and I thought about that. Coincidentally, this morning on my walk, I'm not divorced. I'm not planning on being divorced. Um, But I thought, as I've met more divorced people, and your mother sounds like would be like this, their skills to minister, just talk about your mom's skills to minister because of the road she's walked and her ability to reach more people.
1: I think they're phenomenal. I mean, my mom's the only person I know who can be at Walmart and be talking to the cashier and somehow it ends up, we hear the whole cashier's life story and, and usually both of them are crying and, and my mom's offering words of comfort. I've, I've experienced that multiple times growing up that she just had a way of finding people who just needed to be listened to no matter where they were and she could listen. She could be that person to listen with kindness. And I think that's from her unique experiences where that's what she needed, and she was able to turn around and provide that for people who also need it.
0: That's cool. And so I recognize that often people that have walked difficult roads through no fault of their own like your mom, or even if people have made mistakes, um, and if they're repentance-related have come back, often they're better at ministering and they have more empathy, more Christ-like attributes, and sort of reach out and help people. So I hope we continue to improve. And um, I don't know, you know, I mean, I'm not aware of any general authorities that have been divorced. I'm not aware there are single women serving in senior leadership. Sharon Eubank is one of my favorites, mm-hmm. somebody I really enjoy listening to her when she speaks. And she's never married, and that may not have been possible one or two generations ago, but I hope that we just continue, um, because there's something about role modeling senior leaders and local leaders that then, if you're a divorced woman and you look in the Relief Society General Presidency and there's a divorced woman serving there and speaking at general conference and helping the body of the church, it signals to you that people like you are needed Mm -hmm. and have gifts and attributes, and it normalizes your, destigmatizes your family experience. Yep, You know all this, Rebecca. I'm just mm-hmm. kind of thinking out loud with you. Um, talk about, um, is there anything more you want to share with our listeners about your own family situation and growing up divorced? Um, Not divorced yourself, but just part of a divorced family.
1: No, I mean, it's there's definitely difficult points. And I think the point I'm at now is if I could do it all over again, if I could pick the perfect family where the parents stay together and... Nothing deviates from the norm. I don't think I would choose that life. That I've found value in the experiences that I've had, and I found value in the relationships that I've built because of it. And I don't, I, I, I wouldn't want to miss out on the benefits I've received from it. There's obviously pain, and it's not to discount the pain that I've experienced, or my family's experienced because of the things we've gone through, but there's also value there, value that's been built together as we've struggled together.
0: Do you remember the hardest year? Um, I think there
1: were several points where it was difficult. Obviously, when it first happened, it was difficult. I think getting married, it was also very difficult because it was those fears of, will this be me? Will I be divorced? My dad can't come to the temple ceremony. I, how are we doing family pictures? You know, we have to make sure we talk with the photographer beforehand of, hey, we need this side and then we need this side. And we don't want pictures necessarily together because they're going to want separate copies. And so it just, I, I think that kind of, it, Made it so I was reliving all of it all over Interesting. again and just kind of re-going through it all. I don't believe grief happens in five stages. I believe we go through those five stages over and over again in our lives as we go through different phases. And we process it at different points through different lenses and perspectives.
0: What would you go back and say to yourself? You're two year and a half years away from being married. Or, and what would you go back and say to yourself? at that, at your marriage date or even in your teenage years, now that you know, to just give yourself peace back in that moment?
1: I think just trust, trust in God or whatever power it is you choose to believe in, just trusting that we can have goodness. And just like we know we'll have difficulties in our lives, I think we can also know of a surety that we'll also have goodness in our lives. I think we sometimes forget that other half of it, that, Like I know there's going to be difficult times ahead, but I also know there's going to be some really good times ahead with my husband and with our future family and that I can trust that there will be good coming.
0: Did you go down the road that I'm not going to be able to marry a really good guy because he will never marry the daughter of divorced parents?
1: I think so. I think there's also the, the phase of... I not being like attracted to bad boys is that how you put it like kind of like liking guys who I knew wouldn't be able to offer what it is I actually wanted guys who were not interested in like long-term commitment and a I don't know I'm I'm grateful my husband came along when he did because I I worry that I would have ended up in a situation where divorce would have been probable because the guy I ended up getting married to wasn't going to be as committed as I was to the relationship so
0: is that and you have, I'm not trained in this area. Is it sort of like you lowered your expectations about your future because you were, and so you dated guys that weren't quite who you'd be dating if you, you know, if you just saw yourself the way you see yourself now?
1: Kind of. I think there's some of that. I think there's some trying to find validation that I was worthwhile. Cause I, I think when a parent leaves the home, you feel like maybe am I still worthwhile? Like was I worth, worthy of love? And I also think there's some of, trying to find somebody like my father to kind of fill that void and kind of get somebody like my father to be like, yes, like you are worthwhile and trying to see if I could change them and make them who I want them to be, which isn't feasible in a relationship that doesn't work. And, and so I think there was some of that that happened until I was able to heal enough to move past that hurdle.
0: Yeah, that's really insightful. And back into my YSA service and we visited a little before we went live. Um, Some of the YSAs were, grew up in divorced families and they wondered if somebody would fully love them or, you know, consider them as their spouse. And I just, over and over, I've got the impression that they shouldn't change their expectations about their future. They shouldn't see themselves as damaged goods or lesser in any way. And in fact, this experience would help them be a better partner, a better parent. um, And that whoever And, yeah, there may be some people that are sort of on a checklist, Law of Moses mentality, Mm -hmm. and I was in that stage in my 20s for a little bit that would um, exclude somebody. Um, But I recognize that um, I felt this really strongly with the YSA, is that whoever is going to fall in love with you will love everything about you, including this part of your life, and it won't be a deal breaker. In fact, they'll recognize the increased... Christ-like attributes and gifts that's brought into your life. Any other th- advice you give to um, children, listeners right now, and their teenagers or early twenties that are um, from divorced families?
1: Um, I think just I don't know. I I think n- not lowering your standards is a big part of it. Um, I, I, wonder if I hadn't met my husband when I did, if I would have ended up with somebody that wasn't good enough, not good enough for me, but not matching what I wanted in a relationship. And I think just knowing, figuring out what you want early on and, and not settling for something less than that, like knowing that you are still worthwhile, even if your experiences make you feel like you're not as worthwhile or the stigmatization you face makes you feel less worthy, but you're not, you're just as worthy as anybody else next to you. And, and you are allowed to decide what it is you want for your life and you can chase after what you want in your life and you can expect what you want out of your life.
0: What did your husband Hunter do, if anything, to communicate to you that he, he didn't care that you were from a divorced family?
1: Uh, he was consistent. <laughs> he was always there. He's Whenever I we joke that I always, I need constant validation from him that he still loves me and that he's he still values our marriage together and he never does anything to make me think otherwise, but like, I need to hear him say it a lot. And so I ask him a lot, like, do you still love me? Okay. Like, and it just, it, he's just been consistent with his answers to be consistently dependable, letting me know that, yes, I still love you. Yes. You're still worthwhile to me and worthy to me.
0: That's good. Um, and it sounds often, Couples that kind of go through, or you went through this before your marriage, just you develop better communication skills. You're more vulnerable. You're more honest. And it helps the marriage um, do better and thrive. Uh, talk, about, uh, talk about the role of art. Well, go through, go through the different types of families that don't fit in. To our culture, you kind of mentioned those at the beginning of the podcast.
1: Yeah, so there's the 1950s is is when a lot of psychologists recognize this rise of this traditional family stereotype of this middle class white family where the father's a single income provider and he comes home from work to his wife who stayed home and has cleaned the house and baked fresh What's the movie
0: I love from the 50s? Uh, June Cleaver, what's that called? It's before I don't your know. day, I was that's what I don't I'm know. thinking. <laughs> Our listeners are thinking, anyway.
1: <laughs> Just kind of that stereotype of of that family, and that that family. The psychologists, like with their studies and stuff, they found that's really hard ideal to reach. And it's very exclusive. If you come from a different socioeconomic status, or a different race, or a different ethnicity, or different family structures, that you're automatically excluded from that experience. And, and so it's it's a declining ideal in our society. Like it's not held as strongly by younger generations, but it, it's still lingering there kind of behind the scenes of if you can't get that, then your family is less worthy. And so it can be anything from having infertility and having to adopt or uh, having a biracial marriage to having a divorce or LGBTQ family members. I mean, it's just kind of anything that kind of falls outside of that immigration or poverty or or a lot of the issues that already face a lot of stigmatization, families who experience those issues also face that same stigmatization and affects how that family can function in society.
0: That's, you know, I've read some history of our church, and I think the church really rightly so embraced it because it's our doctrine, nuclear families, strong families. But I think think we really embraced that wave in the 50s and 60s. culturally and a lot of, you know, and I think it helped our church grow um, throughout the United States and the world. And I, but I think there may have been some opportunity costs in that is that if you didn't fit that ideal, like you're talking about that, it it just felt harder to feel like you belong and felt yeah. like your experience was val- as valid, or we would judge somebody that's having a different experience. Yep. Talk about some of these that are you've mentioned LGBTQ. What tell our listeners just how you got connected to that um, group of people?
1: Yeah, so I had friends in high school and in middle school who were who were coming out as gay, and I remember like I cherished our friendships together, and I cherished what I learned from them, and I don't think I would consider myself an ally ally for the ally for that group until recently, where my close friend at work has come out as gay to me. And I've been along with his journey as he's kind of figured out how that reconciles with his ch- with the church because he grew up in the church. He grew up in Utah, and how to tell his family to starting his first relationship, and it just it's been an amazing journey to be along with them. And it's helped me understand the issues that they face and some of the difficulties that they face that, that in some ways kind of match what I experienced growing up in the culture and feeling like I was in the out group, and they also feel like they're in the out group, and. I think they often have it worse than what I had it as, and I think that's that makes me want to cry most days I, I I mourn for them, I mourn with them that it's it's a difficult situation to be in to be part of this church and also to be part of a sexual minority group
0: and when you listen to these stories um what's um, it, I think it just builds empathy um it does. What's your experience if there's listeners that have LGBTQ people as you're an ally? What can they best do for LGBTQ people?
1: Just listen and listen without judging. And it's hard to do at first because we have all these preconceived notions, especially when we believe in this doctrine of a marriage between a man and a woman. It's hard to not feel like, oh, am I supporting them? Am I making myself so I'm not worthy to carry temple recommends? There's questions of do you support causes against the church? And we can support them without attacking the church and and that's it's a hard line to walk walk and it definitely kind of can feel uncomfortable at times but it's beneficial to sit with those uncomfortable feelings and to sit with them because that's the line that they're forced into being part of that group and while trying to be part of the church.
0: Yeah, good answer and it gives me hope when I hear so many of your age group, you know, recognizing the difficult road why did it talk about the role of artwork? You mentioned that earlier, Rebecca. I've, yeah. I've never thought too much about artwork and its ability to bring, to build empathy.
1: Yeah. So my journey with art started in high school. I did a concentration portfolio on the aftermath of divorce, and it was really therapeutically soothing for my own soul to kind of work through my experiences and recognize the good and the bad from them. And so in college, while I've been in school, I, I researched for a paper about uh, community art initiatives. And I came across these couple of studies. There's one in Hong Kong where they had mentally ill patients create art and then they had the public come and view the art and mental illness in Asia is very stigmatized. And they interviewed them before and after the exhibition and found that people reported lower stigma and greater empathy for those who are mentally ill and started having conversations about how to change their culture and better include them. And they found the same results in the United Kingdom with uh, childhood victims of sexual assault, where they had them create art and had the public come and view it. And again, they reported greater empathy for that marginalized group, greater understanding. Because art it, it comes down to the fact that art can be a non-threatening mode of communication where you can interact with an art piece and not have to interact with a person. And so you can sit there with your uncomfortable feelings. You can sit there and reevaluate what you think of them without having to do that in front of them. And so you feel safer in that environment. So it's really interesting how we interact with art and how we can better understand the world around us and those around us through the medium of art.
0: Are you an artist?
1: Kind of. (laughs) I did it in high school. I wouldn't call myself an artist, but I I definitely appreciate the arts and what they can do for our our civilizations.
0: And let's go back to this group you started, um, the Abnormal Family Project. Did you start that on your own or did you start with others?
1: I mostly on my own. My husband was supportive. I had a couple of friends from high school who have helped me do outreach with it. And it, it really it's it's meant to be a community art publication where people can submit their stories of their unique family experiences, whether it's writing or photography or painting or drawing, whatever mode of art you prefer, whatever skill level to contribute to this and create an end work of all these different stories from all these walks of lives that somebody can go through and look at in a non way and better understand families that are different from their own. And so this group on Facebook is to kind of help encourage and get people to come and be interested in this project as well as get updates about the project and, and kind of help get this out into the community. Because the more people who participate, the more meaningful this project can be.
0: And if I were to submit a project, would I submit an art piece plus a worded story
1: yeah so i there's a survey on the facebook page it's in every post we have the link there through it's just go through google forms and you could submit up to five pieces of whatever choice of art you want to do and then i have sections for you to um, check in which way you feel like your family experience has been abnormal or non-traditional and then there's also um a, a spot for a brief biography and the biography will be included in the publication at the end so somebody can look at an art piece and then go look at the biography to kind of see where the artist was coming from when they created their piece.
0: And where will the publication, is it, it'll be a physical, just talk about the deliverable when it's done.
1: Yeah, so we're currently anticipating through Amazon because they have a, a cheaper publication rate right now and we'll keep the price as low as you possibly can make it so that it can be dispersed very easily to whoever needs it. And so... As a book? As, as a book, yeah. So we'll have it come together as a book um, with with pictures and poems and short stories or whatever it is that are, that's submitted so that people can, again, go through it and, and communicate with these marginalized groups in a very non-threatening way.
0: Talk about the use of the word abnormal. I'm reading a Facebook post here within the group kind of explaining that. Share with our listeners... Um, why you chose the name you chose?
1: Yeah, so it was either abnormal or non traditional, and abnormal was a little bit shorter and easier to say, which is part of it, but it's also because I felt like abnormal was harsher. It, it carried more of the stigmas with it. I mean, I wanted to highlight the stigmas that these families face, as well as um, adopting negative labels as a, to a group, to a marginalized group, can empower that group. And so by adopting a negative label, we empower marginalized families who fall under that label of abnormal families to kind of take back that power on their own as well as to help other people see these families as more powerful. And the research, there's research that supports this. It's really fascinating, this adoption of negative self-labeling to empower somebody.
0: Explain that more.
1: So it's the research study. They went through 10 different uh, marginalized groups and they they had them. They looked at what happened when they adopt a negative label directed towards them. It's like a big one that we can all think of as the N word directed towards the black community. And when the black community adopts that to, as their own, even though it carries a lot of negative connotation, it kind of takes away the power of that negative connotation while also empowering the black community and having others who look at them as marginalized recognize them as more powerful than before they adopted the term and so it's interesting how it's kind of like taking something bad something somebody says about you and saying okay i'm going to own it and then it kind of takes away the power of them judging you with that it's fascinating
0: i'm going to hand you my phone it's got your june 1st um yeah if you're okay will you read that to our listeners and just share more of the thinking behind that post
1: Yeah, so this was June 1st when everything was going down with Black Lives Matter, and we posted that Black Lives Matter, Black Families Matter, Black Fathers Matter, Black Mothers Matter, Black Children Matter. The normal, in quotations, family in America is traditionally depicted as white. Not all families are white, and non-white families and individuals deserve to be seen, heard, and valued. We see you, we hear you, we value you.
0: Um, Pretty powerful. Did you write that?
1: Yeah. It Again, you can see, the listeners won't see, my husband's got dark skin and he comes from a racially diverse family, his mother's from Tonga, and we've experienced, I've, in some part, the discrimination towards people of different races, people with darker skin, and so when I saw everything happening, I, I wanted people who were going to participate in this project to know this is also for those who felt the stigma because of their skin color that we're here to fight with them to fight these stigmas to fight the racism to fight these negative connotations we carry towards people who look different but really aren't different we're all we're all humans
0: talk about i don't know if you can be a voice for just BYU students it, and i realize this is an unscientific question but mm-hmm. as maybe just talk about the psychology department are you and all the students talking about these issues, or is 10% of you and all the students talking about this? Just take us to BYU and the psychology department for our listeners that, you know, are these sort of issues being talked about? They are. It's interesting the longer
1: I'm in the major and I start having classes with some of the same people, like the same people are are vocal, and it's interesting to see kind of that dynamic play out, and it's also interesting to see that I, I feel like the progressive is heard more, especially in our classes and psychology classes, that we're more open to hearing progressive opinions. And people who carry more traditional opinions have expressed that they feel like they can't share them as much because they feel like they'll be judged in reverse. And so it's it's interesting to see kind of like that dynamic shift, like the pendulum swing the opposite direction. But I do know a lot of my professors are really good at trying to facilitate those hard conversations and talk about these populations because a lot of my peers want to go into counseling or go into research and they're going to interact with these marginalized groups and try to kind of help prepare them because we're not a very diverse school by any means so we kind of lack that to kind of help prepare them to have more mind space for those marginalized groups.
0: And any feeling for BYU in general um, just as a whole are these issues when you look at the publications the Daily Universe if that's what it's called the Twitter feed just the the vibe at BYU, and I realize you're not on campus now. Any just insights about these issues as part of BYU students in general?
1: So I feel like that there's a, a good, solid group of students who are aware of these issues and are very sensitive to these populations. I feel like there's a also equally sizable population that's not very sensitive. I mean, with the issues that have happened at BYU recently with the panel on race and then the honor code issue that, that went down that I, I feel like there's a lot of room for improvement at BYU. And I'm glad when I see my peers who are very vocal about fighting discrimination, about fighting racism or, or discrimination towards sexual minorities, that they're still there in my classes and we're still talking about it and we're still trying to talk to others about it at BYU to kind of try to change the culture. That there's there's some hidden discrimination there that doesn't get voiced unless it's anonymous and it's really discouraging when that happens. And That we're, I'm I'm heartened to see people who decide to stay and try to fight that together.
0: Thank you for that answer. Um, Will you tell our listeners what white privilege is? Can you define that?
1: So, white privilege is when you have unearned automatic benefits or you have um, an unearned pass from experiencing difficulty that somebody, a, a person of color, would otherwise experience. Uh, it's interesting. My mom, I don't know if you've seen the hundred dollar bill race no. video. So basically this guy holds down a hundred dollar bill and it's a race and you can move forward from the starting line. If you have, um, experienced certain privileges, like having both parents in the home and not having to worry about where your next meal comes from, et cetera. My mom watched it and she called me and was in tears and, oh, you guys wouldn't have moved from the starting line at all. Like you'd be back there with all those, with all the, um, the people of color on that starting line there. And I'm like, yes, but the thing is, is my skin color hasn't part of what's made my life difficult. And that makes their lives more difficult than it needs to be when they're already in difficult situations. So that's how I would describe white privilege from my perspective.
0: Yeah, the word privilege is a word that I've always heard my whole life, but it wasn't until the last five or eight years that I've really understood. Privilege seems to be things I'm born with that I didn't earn. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, White privilege, straight privilege, male privilege—if that's a Um, (laughs) term—economic privilege. I just recognize I have a lot of privilege. I have sort of leadership privilege that, you know, because of my experiences in the church, that may give me more credibility. Which maybe it shouldn't, because someone without leadership in the church could have just as good insights about the gospel. Mm -hmm. My words shouldn't carry more weight than. Oh, anybody else? Age privilege, I guess, is something that I didn't earn. I'm just 59, and I didn't graduate from a class to suddenly be 59. So I'm thinking out loud here on this podcast, but privilege is really fascinating for me. And then I recognize it seems, and I'm learning this from the younger people, it seems like my responsibility is to use my privilege to help marginalize people.
1: Absolutely. And, and while I recognize that I've had certain privileges, i am also aware of what it feels like to not have those privileges, just given my family situation and experiences that we've had. And that, I don't know, it's nothing that somebody did. They didn't choose to decide to be unprivileged or to not have a less difficult life, that it's often something that's out of their control. And we, if we have an easier life or, For hand and more privilege, we have the responsibility to help them. We're supposed to help them until we all have the same privilege. And we're a long ways from getting there.
0: When you look at a doctrinal foundation for what you just said, is there anything that resonates with you?
1: I think that we're all, the doctrine that we're all children of God and that we all came to different walks of life when we were born to this mortal journey. And I, I think sometimes we get caught up in these mortal class systems that we put ourselves into. And they're not class systems of God. They're not divine in any way that God sees us all very equally and that he loves all of us equally. And he mourns, I believe he mourns greatly when he sees us treat each other in a way that makes our lives harder than it needs to be.
0: Great answer. You're doing a great job on this podcast. Tell any parables that Christ taught or anything in his life that gives us a foundation to do what you're doing.
1: My favorite is the parable of the lost sheep. I definitely feel like my family's kind of fallen in that sometimes where we feel like the lost sheep in our ward and we don't feel like we fit in and whether or not we were left behind or if we somehow wandered away from the herd, whatever it was that happened, that we felt like we're on the out group. And I, I love the imagery of, of imagining our Savior walking towards my family and walking towards me or to my mom or my brothers and single-handedly bringing us back in with love and compassion and understanding and knowing that, recognizing our value, that we were enough for him to go out of his way to make sure we came back into the group.
0: That's cool. Um I love that parable and a thought came to my mind that's never come to my mind before that parable and you kind of suggested it is maybe you're not the lost sheep, maybe the herd just moved in a different direction (laughs) and it's part of the shepherd's job to recognize the herd has moved a little bit. I don't wanna get too deep on that because I don't (laughs) want to infer that we as a church are moving in the wrong direction or but sometimes the loss, you're feeling marginalized as a, as a child of divorced parents isn't because you left the fold. It's more symbolic. The fold just didn't have the tools to understand your road. Yeah. And it's not like out a rebellion or you want to leave. And so the, the master shepherd knew you well enough to know the story of where you were, how to find you and how to bring you back. So I think that's part of your ministry with this Facebook group and with art and getting stories is then we better understand, quote unquote, the lost sheep. They're really not lost. Mm -hmm. We just need better tools to bear more in comfort so we can understand where they are, why they are where they are, and what perhaps we've said or not said to cause them to feel not part of the flock symbolically, even though they might be sitting right with us.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: It's interesting. Um, I certainly am um, drawn to the te- the teachings of Christ in the New Testament, and so many of those parables were Christ being with people that everybody around him said he shouldn't be with, mm-hmm. um, and his ministry just seems like it was to the marginalized absolutely, and helping them feel fully included in the body of Christ and everything he could do um, with people that we would be kind of shocked. And so I look at that, and I look at Black Lives Matter, um, Black Lives Matters, and the different social movements that are topical right now in June of 2020. And I think, in fact, I put this on Twitter last night, uh, maybe standing in holy places, and I've got that in quotes, includes participating in peaceful protests denouncing racism, sexism, homophobia, and transphobia. And I just look at, um, especially your age group, active Latter-day Saints that are part of peaceful protests, um, and that's a way of bringing voice to these issues. Mm -hmm. And it's not out of rebellion, it's not out of anger, but it's out of a deep commitment of our baptism covenants to mourn, bear, and comfort. And sometimes we see protests and we just kind of want to say, well, that's a sign of the last days, or that's a sign of anger, rebellion, but... Even people that get angry in protests, as I listen to those people, they've had a lot of pain, and pain Mm -hmm. leads to anger. And if I even, I'm not for looting, looting, and I'm not for, I'm breaking laws, but I do sort of understand better why black people, for example, could be pretty angry. Absolutely. Um, Even though I don't personally feel that anger, I'm not black, and I haven't had some of the experiences they've had. And I think when we try to suppress anger, or just say, get over it or don't be angry. I think we've got to let people permission to feel anger. It's part of healing. Any thoughts on any of that?
1: I I love when Christ went to the temple and was overturning tables. Like he felt anger. And I think there are times where we're allowed to feel anger when people are, are grossly undervaluing human rights or undervaluing the gospel or undervaluing things that we should value more than anything else that I think we are allowed to feel angry in those circumstances and not angry or not to the point where we're hateful or making the issue worse, but angry that injustice is happening until justice can start happening.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that that is part of our canon. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking about the Canaanite woman a lot, um, And that's a parable we don't talk about too much. You know, she came to this God of the Jews, and she wasn't even Jewish. She was a Canaanite woman, so she was marginalized because she wasn't Jewish. She was a woman. Um, She was considered unclean, and she made her way to the disciples, and they tried to shoo her away. And Christ, if you read that parable carefully— he didn't respond very favorably to her at first. And she was, didn't even bring the daughter with her that wanted to be healed. And um, so I read a paper recently um, from an LDS author that suggested that Christ may have been not, he may have been learning about his full ministry, and it may have taken that experience to help him understand his ministry was broader than the Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I think of Christ who's perfect, and he's perfect, but he's still capable of learning. Mm-hmm. Um, he was obviously learning as a perfect youth and a perfect teenager. He's without sin. But sometimes I think I, I've thought a lot about the the fact that um, it teaches me I want to always, I'm obviously not perfect, but I also want to always continue to learn. Yeah. And perhaps like the Canaanite, like Christ even learned in that parable, if we read it, read it literally, that he was not kind to her at first. And then he became kind to her and healed her daughter. And of course, we know that, the, uh, you know, the apostles took the gospel to the whole world. Um, it went way beyond the Jews. It was the original focus of Christ's ministry. And we could almost argue without those apostles taking the gospel to the world, it'd be hard to know where Christianity was. So mm-hmm. I, I just throw it out there. Um, I don't i just been something listeners that I've been thinking about is, you know, it wants me to continue to learn about marginalized groups and my responsibility and be willing to let go of opinions that perhaps I've formulated that are not accurate. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on any of that?
1: I, I totally agree with all of that. And I I, I don't. I agree, and I, I believe again. My experience with understanding experiences and letting go of opinions that I previously held has been through being in proximity with those experiences, and for me, it's, sometimes it's been through art, sometimes it's been through friendship, sometimes it's been through having to go through it myself and my family. That finding a way to get proximate to those people and to their stories. I think, can help us better understand our role in following Christ and ministering to those populations, to those groups, and to those individuals.
0: Proximate to those stories. I love the visual of that, Rebecca, proximate. Mm -hmm. I just, when you say that, I think of sitting next to somebody and just hearing their story. Absolutely. Do you want to talk any more about our LGBTQ friends? You've got a gay friend that you're talking to right now. Just helping our listeners understand their difficult road or what we can do to help them.
1: I, I don't know. I think that's for them to say. I know it's I'm not answer. on that side. <laughs> it's a good answer. But I, I do know that something I have enjoyed, I've learned to enjoy more and more, is just hearing him talk and hearing him talk about how he's trying to reconcile his faith and his orientation and and the choices he's making. And I just kind of I feel like I'm privileged to be along just to watch his journey unfold. That I, I greatly admire and respect him. And I think we all could learn a lot from that group that they have so much to offer that I think we sometimes overlook or undervalue that it's just, it's there. It's just waiting for us to sit there and listen to them and hear what they have to share with us.
0: Well said. And I, you know, I talk about this a lot. One of the fathers who's been on the podcast, Bryce Cook, who's got two gay sons, taught me this idea of the double binder in his gay sons, that they love the church and they want to fully participate in the church, but they would love not to be alone for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. And some are able to do that. Some of our gay and lesbian members um, do are able to be celibate. But I think we just recognize that's a really, that's a hard ask. And I invite everybody to live the teachings of our church, but I just recognize that every LGBTQ person needs to find their way. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about self and Our job is to help them make the most thoughtful decisions they can, to keep them in our lives in an unconditional way, and help them make their way forward. And just recognize, you know, I go back to my days at BYU when I was dating, and I think I've talked about this on the podcast, I just recognize a lot of my motivation was for my future family. That's what got me up early in the morning to go over to the Tanner Building and study at <laughs> 6 a.m. I'm the proud owner of an 18 on the ACT. Good grades come really hard for me. Um, I had to work really hard in graduate school and I remember getting up early to the Tanner Building and I'm really studying hard because it was hard for me to get good grades, but you know what the motivation was, Rebecca? It was my future family. Mm-hmm. to be a father, to be a husband, to raise kids, to provide financial stability. And what would it have been like for me to be a BYU student um, and not have that hope as part of my motivation and, and, to, and to be spending emotional capital sort of managing to fit into a heteronormative normative world. And I just, as I've thought about that over the years, it's caused need to have much more empathy for the difficult road because graduate school at BYU, that's where I went to graduate school is difficult enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I just share that because I just don't know how that really worked out for me um, as a way sort of to build empathy. I did get good enough grades <laughs> <laughs> to get a good job and I've learned what my skills are and what my skills aren't <laughs> and I've sort of accepted who I am and that's helped me in my career. Other things you'd like to share with our listeners Rebecca
1: um, just if you feel that you in any way have experienced stigma with your family your family in some ways non-traditional when part of what helped me come up with this idea was a panel I was on at BYU for non-traditional families cool and they asked Very us cool. they asked us they're like, what do you think of the term non-traditional and or abnormal? And my response was that while, My two Christmases and two Thanksgivings and multiple different family vacations with either mom or dad, not with both. While that's normal to me, I understand that's not normal to other people, but I feel like all of our families have something that's not normal to other people. And so in that case, wouldn't all of our families in some way be non-traditional or abnormal? And amphitheater filled with snapping as people found support that it resonated with people. And I, I realized that we all have a story to share that in some way our family experience has been unique and that story of what we learned through that unique experience can help others. And so I just I invite your listeners to come check out the Facebook page, come check out the survey link, and see if they'd like to participate because I feel like if we can come together, that this can be a really great tool for people who are in the midst of difficult or challenging situations with their families.
0: Talk about the proclamation to the families. So... Um, A consistent theme I see in some Facebook groups I'm in is I'm active LDS and I want to, I'm teaching a lesson on the proclamation to the family. And I, but I recognize there may be people in the classroom that that doesn't work for them or their family story doesn't fit that. And I want to teach that and also create better understanding for those that don't fit that path. Any thoughts for teachers or parents or just people that are trying to, Talk about that in a way that it doesn't exclude anybody.
1: Yeah, so it's definitely been a really po- difficult point for me to reconcile my belief in the church with the family proclamation and then my own personal experience. And I recently shared that with Professor Wood in my class before Tom Christofferson came and visited, and she shared my thoughts with him and had him specifically address that and I loved the point that he made that he's like you know my parents they have a wonderful marriage they're considered a traditional marriage and they fit that family proclamation and he's like I'd argue probably 95 percent of the people in the church fit that proclamation and we can endorse that and believe in that while we also wait for revelation on the other five percent and I feel like that that's something that's just really soothed my soul over the past few weeks of just realizing that I can believe and we can teach it and we can talk about it, but we also need to talk about the other 5% and just trust in God that God's aware of that 5% and that there may be revelation we do not yet know or that we do not have yet understanding for that thats coming for that 5% because He loves all of us. The whole 100% He loves equally. And I, I wouldn't imagine that He doesn't have a plan for that 5% that feel like they don't fit with that family proclamation.
0: That's a great answer, and I just, nuance is a word that I've picked up in the last couple of years, just the nuance to be able to, to navigate those complicated roads, and it takes time to navigate that, and I'm glad you've been thinking about that question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of active LDS people are thinking about the same question, They're just recognizing there's a percentage of committed Latter-day Saints that does, doesn't fit, that path does not fit for them, and so what do we do? Um, I think the first thing we do we acknowledge that that path doesn't fit for them, and we sit with them like you're teaching um and listen to their stories and i and empathize that and I think that helps them. but then what I think we also it's find a hope that we receive further light and understanding that that group may have we may have better path for them mm-hmm. um, in the future, and I think it's a faithful position to have as we continue to sustain our current teachings to hope that perhaps something further will be revealed um, for people that don't fit that path. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is a Facebook group listeners, the abnormal family project. I encourage everybody to find that page that Rebecca um, Hatch has put together as well as her husband Hunter that's helped and others. And you're looking for submissions. Is there a deadline on submissions?
1: Yeah, so we pushed back the deadline to December 31st. I emailed the teachers in Utah, our teachers in Utah, and Law them express that they want their students to participate. And so great. it's at the end of the year so that we can have our high school students also participate and share their experiences. So,
0: That's great. Anything, any last comment you'd like to share with our listeners, Rebecca?
1: Nope. I
0: I, I thank you for
1: this experience and... It was, it was great talking to you about all of this.
0: Thank you, Rebecca Hatch, um, for your work and the, just the wonderful people in our church and society that recognize that there's marginalized groups and want to do everything they can with their privilege, which is really part of our baptism covenants to reach out and help them. And I love the role of art. What a wonderful, inspired thing. And I just, I'm excited for your project and I encourage our listeners to um, check out your Facebook page to submit um, projects by the end of this year and so that this book becomes a reality. And and then I think once it becomes a book, it won't be the end of this project that I see mm-hmm. further um, as this continues to gain momentum and helps heal and and bring hope and better understanding. So Rebecca Hatch, thank you. This is Richard Osler signing off of another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.